Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been uh, working through a series really based on just what we all need to hear in times when things are difficult and when uh, we're feeling stressed. And there's a lot of things you could pick if you wanted to go to the, the, the shelf of things to choose from to worry about right now. Uh, options abound. And so uh, where we are flesh with options, we should decide how we're going to use those. We've been talking about assurance and the assurance we have from God, this assurance that would uh, spread over our whole lives to give us a sense of belonging and hope and a sense of security, that the things that we hoped in aren't the things that are so easily taken away and removed. Assurance is not uh, something, a confidence we have in only good times. What sets assurance apart is that it exists in both good and bad, that it stays when the shaking begins. Assurance is a reminder of something that never moves. So we've been looking at the assurance that Jesus has with us as he speaks in uh, John 10 about being the shepherd, that he knows his sheep by name, that he calls them out, and that he has uh, his guidance is there, who he is as a shepherd and the assurance that we draw from that. And today I want to look at, uh, we've looked at who do we hope in. I'd love to look at what does he give us to hope in. What are his promises and what does he have for us? You know, risk is a powerful word, and it's particularly powerful when applied to that terrible board game that destroys families. Has anybody played the game Risk? Anybody ban it from their house? I know somebody who, their, her, it was, the, the, let me just think what happened here. The son came back, he was, from out of, he was living in out of town, he came back for Thanksgiving, and he was there for two days, and the game took two days. Because something about risk is it can take two days. If you're not familiar with it, the entire world is laid out, and it's like Enlightenment era, you know, cannons and kind of American Revolution era. And you put your little soldiers, you each roll a dice, you get to pick where they're at, and then your goal is to conquer all of it. And so you build up your soldiers, and you, and you fight back and forth, and you spend all this time building up your empire just to have someone you thought was your friend take it away. Monopoly shows you uh, who in your family steals, and risk, risk shows you the backstabbers. So he comes back. He's, he was out of town. They're playing the game. takes two days. And if you haven't played, it always ends in Australia, because Australia can only be attacked from one direction. And so it's always the Australia rollout. It takes hours. And when it, when it was finally getting over and it became clear that my friend's dad was going to lose, he took the board and he threw it across the room. And it actually put like a dent in the drywall. I mean, it was flying. Um, <laughs> It can really be a, a divisive game, which is probably why my predecessor always invited us youth kids over to play Risk at his house. <laughs> we were there one time, and some people in here know Joe, Joe Schufelt, a longtime friend of mine, used to go to church here. We were in that, in Risk, you'll commonly, you'll broker an alliance between your empire and someone else to just destroy some friend of yours, then you'll divide up his stuff, and then you fight each other. But you have to be careful in how you plan this, because as soon as someone finds out what you're planning, they will move and shift, and they'll prepare for what you're going to do. So you have to do it nonchalant. And I do happen to be old enough that I remember the rules of when you can't text in front of people. So it was nonverbal communication. And at one point, like, we, we were looking at it, and it became very clear, at least to me, what I thought he and I should do. And we both started looking at the board and going, huh, huh, huh? And we're doing that back and forth, and people are like, what is going on? And then inexplicably, at the same time, he and I both went, yeah, and we knew that we were in sync, and it freaked everybody out, because it was like, 
that Nazi Enigma machine, people couldn't figure out what they were saying. Like, we had figured out secret communication. Um, and we kicked uh, the host, uh, Mike Wilde, out of the game, and he had to sit there and watch us play for hours because we conquered his empire. Um, but it was a moment for me and Joe that we had a deep understanding and like-mindedness, that without words, uh, with just some gesticulations, and then this really weird, ah, same tone, same pitch. It was really weird. One of the weirdest moments of my life. Um, and yeah, Jake's a witness to this. He saw that happen, and it freaked everyone out. It was a... Uh, Actually, funny thing, if you've ever played Risk, I watched Jake win that night on the Australia rollout. All of his guys were in Australia, and somehow he won and conquered the world. It was crazy. Uh, lucky dice. Uh, very frustrating for everybody playing against him. Uh, anyway, but Risk, it was this moment where he and I, we had this nonverbal communication. We connected because we had this certain uh, like-mindedness. Uh, it's important to, uh, let me make sure, I went, I went so far into that Australia thing. Let's make sure that the pastor doesn't screw up his sermon. Um, when it, once you've been shepherded for a while and you're with God, there comes a point where it's critical that we grow in like-mindedness with him. That as we share time and as we're with God, we would share what he has, not just hoping that he will lead, but wanting where he's going to lead us and wanting the kind of hope he gives us. We come to Jesus with a need, and we stay because he showed us needs we never knew we had. We first come because there's something that happened, and we don't know uh, how to fix family. We don't know how to fix ourselves. And so we come to this thing of, like, I just need something eternal to come save me and deliver me. But the definition of a lost soul is a soul so lost it doesn't even know what it needs. So we get to God and we find that we have needs we never knew we really needed. And it's critical for us if we're going to grow in this assurance, we're going to grow in the kind of confidence we have about our lives and where we're going, that we would begin to become like-minded with the Lord. Like-minded in what he has for his promises for us and that we would begin to grow and change what we expect, what we ask for, and what we hope for. So we're going to continue on. We're going to read a little bit more uh, from the passage we were reading last week about Jesus is speaking with Pharisees about what is he like as the good shepherd. So we're in John 10. We're going to pick up in verse 27. He says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Now, I was telling, uh, we were talking last week about how after these statements, they want to stone him, they want to kill him, because this is the most public statement Jesus makes, that he is God. He was careful with that and rolled it out at a certain time, but at this point, he's making it very clear that he is sovereign and that he is powerful and he is capable to lead, um, not just as a great teacher, but as God himself. In Jesus' day, people came to him for all kinds of things. They came to him because they wanted healing. Uh, they came to him because they wanted deliverance. Even big, big requests, like re uh, requesting that someone be resurrected from the dead. But in time, certain ones that traveled with him grew in a like-mindedness with him. 
sharing certain ideas, and they found that they had needs that they never knew they needed and promises they never knew they needed promised to them. Jesus is going beyond saying as a shepherd, he leads and, and takes care of the, of the wounds and the pain, and he gives good health, but now he is saying the ultimate goal where the shepherd is leading his sheep is into eternal life, into the hands of the Father, into his own hands as one who is with the Father and in the Father and is the Father. All those wondrous things and signs, the things that uh, made people attracted to him, made them want to come and be around him, the healings, the deliverance, the, the words of knowledge that he could speak into people and just knew who they were, like the woman at the well, he knew who she was. All of these things are signs. They're referred to as signs. And so uh, when we think about signs, it's critical to know that Jesus did not do miracles because they were really amazing and cool, and that was just the purpose. Every single one of them points to ultimate promises. To some degree, all who are in Christ are promised healing, that, that they will be raised up and they will raise on the last day and they will be whole and complete some people receive that early as a sign of the ultimate healing, and some people wait until they're healed in the end. A sign is not a thing to itself. Everything Jesus did, everything that met people's needs, pointed to something more eternal. A hospital sign is not a hospital. You get to the blue sign of the big white H. You're not going to go there for triage. You know it's a sign that points you to somewhere else. And as Jesus' miracles are pointing to eternal promises, the fulfillment and the completeness of what he has and what he brings. Jesus cleansed lepers and restored them because it's a sign and it's symbolic of what he does with all people, cleansing them from sin so they could be clean, made whole again, and restored to the community in heaven. Consider what lepers were and what that image meant. It was people who had such aggressive skin conditions that people would not allow them to be with the group. They had to be separate. They had to be apart. There wasn't much healing that could be done. Maybe they'll recover. Maybe they never will. But they had to be outside the community and could not be with it. And when Jesus touches them, their skin becomes whole and they can come back into the city. As great as a miracle as that was, and it transformed people's lives, for those that were healed, if they did not realize that Jesus was teaching about a grander healing and a greater community to be restored to, they would have misinterpreted the sign. Jesus raised people from the dead, uh, like the, the child that he raises from the dead, or like Lazarus. He does these things because it is a symbol of the life that he gives. That we can get to a spot in our humanity, and we all do, that we are dead, dead, and there is nothing that can save what's going on inside of us, both uh, spiritually, emotionally, and at some point eternally. And these signs are something that tell us that Jesus is capable of giving life to things that are completely, totally, and thoroughly dead. And it points to the final life he gives everyone. Many followed Jesus because they wanted a natural liberation from Rome. This, is, this was the dominating view of the Messiah before uh, Jesus came on the scene. It was this idea that he would be the grand king, the one to unify everybody, the, this, this incredible savior figure, and it would be natural. It would be about spreading and reestablishing the kingdom of David, throwing off Rome, and he would administrate and lead the world in peace. They wanted liberation from those little things, but for a few, for 12, they found that they needed liberation from something much deeper, much greater, 
and something death can't deliver you from. When the Romans kill you, you're not under the Romans anymore. But when we die under sin, we are always under death. And the ultimate liberation that the Messiah brings is much greater than just being liberated from one nation and one thing. You know, a few people wake up thinking to themselves, boy, I sure wish a Savior would come and save me from my sins and put me into eternity. No one thinks that on the outside. Until you get saved and you know the Lord, that is actually not the main thing that stimulates people to come and find him. We all start following him for different reasons. Our families are a mess. Our life is a mess. We're not thinking about eternal salvation of the soul. We're thinking things like, I just want the pain to stop. I want to have a purpose. I want to see a miracle happen in my family, or I want to feel a sense of deep peace. And the amazing thing is Jesus does all those things. He does heal us. He does restore us. He does give us peace. But there comes in every Christian's life a critical moment and critical moments that play out over and over again of a transfer between following Jesus, not for the little signs and miracles, but following him for the ultimate thing those miracles always pointed to, the eternal promises This is the ultimate assurance of Jesus, the thing that covers all things. That for the the apostles that that write Scripture, they talk about the ability of God to cover and to protect. They talk about how important it is to trust in him. All of them except for John died as martyrs. But their hope and their assurance was in something greater than those simple things. The ultimate assurance of Jesus is greater. He makes a promise and comes through on greater promises. He heals us in the beginning, and he heals us in little ways so that they all point and they all direct, and they go towards something that is so critical that like a waypoint, like a compass, it would direct us and say, there is so much more in this world to live for than the little things I got started with. One of the most poignant ways Jesus teaches on this is during his Sermon on the Mount. He says in uh, Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And really think about this phrase here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he concludes this teaching later saying, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There is this picture that Jesus creates that the natural life serves into the eternal, and it's for the eternal. That the meaning of this natural life, in a sense, is to pine and to plant that we'd be pining and dreaming of the life that is to come and holding those eternal promises in our hands, in our minds, in such a way that it changes our daily decisions, that we stop thinking about just tomorrow and we begin to think about eternity, the things we do, our planting, and looking forward to greater things. That we would plant seeds that we harvest in eternity. His encouragement is that our earthly lives would be lived for the sake of the life that is to come. You cannot serve God and money, and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
I guess the question is, is can we truly feel blessed assurance when we are living so much for this temporal life? When we are consumed with what we are going to do here before we die, if we live for that entirely, can we truly experience the fullness of Christ's blessed assurance that he has over us, the confidence we have to live a life daily at peace? We are promised a life of glory, but many saints died martyrs, not just the 12. There's books full of these stories. We are promised life eternal. But actually, except for Jesus, every single Christian has died. It is extremely clear that the promises of the kingdom are for something that is yet to come. We must be, uh, one must have this all-encompassing idea that all other things are submitted to Christ. You cannot serve two masters. You can't have two pursuits. You can't spend your whole life to have a great retirement while at the same time being entirely devoted to Jesus. You can do both. There is prudent decisions to do for now and for eternity. But what matters is that they're always submitted to the, to the greater things. That we would say the pursuit of my life and what I really think about, what I study on, what I work towards would be something beyond, something greater, something that never fades away. Moths and vermins break in. They take away the things Jesus is talking about. Why would you spend your life building in a world where everything decays and falls apart? There will come a point when human history goes to the next chapter into eternity and those things last forever. It would make so much more sense to prepare for that than now. Who goes on vacation to to another climate? You're going to, I don't know, you're going to Tahiti. What a wonderful fantasy we all get to live for a moment. Who would pack for the PDX airport when you know you're going to Tahiti? You wouldn't because you're like, well, it's climate controlled. I don't really need uh, shorts. Actually, it's probably going to be cold. I'm going to pack some sweatpants and it better be, I'm going to need to be comfortable. And you do not prepare all your time at home for the airport, do you? Because you know what it's going to end and what it's going to go towards after the airport is a completely different climate. You would want to prepare for that. You would want to to pack the right sunblock. You would want to pack the right things in your bag. We would prepare our lives for where we're really going. Thinking about that and living for it. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells this uh, amazing story. If you get time later today, you should read it. But it's a story of all the saints of the Old Testament. And what they all, what marks them all, it's the same thing. They wouldn't live for this life, they live for the one beyond it. Abraham left his charmed life. He was going to be the heir patron to his own father, meaning that the house, the wealth, the home, the property they built for generations, generational wealth was a big thing. He would have been in charge of it, like a little king or a little chief over that family. But he leaves that charmed life to be a pilgrim and to wander because God gave him a promise to go to this place, and I will make your descendants many. And we find out something very critical about Abraham. He didn't do it looking for just property or wealth. In fact, Hebrews says he was looking forward, not to his own life, looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. These eternal promises go from generation to generation. Grandpa Abraham gets it. It comes down to Esau. Esau has an opportunity to to claim that promise, to put his faith in it, but he doesn't believe it. He doesn't see how God's fulfilled anything to them, and he's willing to trade that blessing, to not take the part as the patron, to lead that family. He trades it for something carnal, trades it for soup because he's hungry. 
And what's amazing is that even though his brother Jacob he steals it. He steals it. it. It is theft. There is no biblical defense of how Jacob gets that blessing. Yet what happens to him is there's so much grace poured into his life because Jacob believed that that blessing was so critical and it was worth taking hold of because he believed that God was going to do something incredible and he wanted to take hold of God's promises. By an incredible faith in the eternal promises of God, Joseph uh, that would have been another grandson down from that generation, is cast into Egypt. He's lost from the family. He raises up and has an incredible status in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But as he's dying, he tells his family, don't let me be buried in Egypt. He says, take my bones when you leave, because he's so confident that God's promises will come through and take them with you that it would be in his promises, forsaking all the amazing stuff that was built in his life, all the honor and glory that was his, because what he saw beyond it was even better. So take my bones with you. I do not want to be remembered for Egypt. I want to be remembered for my promises, or the promises of God. In life, we are put to this test so often of what matters more, earthly success or eternal success. It's not just going to be once in our life we have these moments. They happen in our lives often. How are we going to spend our time? What are we going to think about? What are we going to fuss and worry and build up in our lives? The Apostle Paul is an incredible individual who forsook everything, giving up a very charmed life to do something very difficult, and he does it with incredible faith. His method, I think he lays it out best in Colossians 3. He says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set, excuse me, set your hearts on things above and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. To grow in our faith and our desire for the actual promises Jesus has, to get beyond the infantile uh, milk promises of being healed in our families, healed in our bodies, healed in our daily life, but to go further on to greater things, it's going to require constantly setting our minds on the promises God has, turning them over in our hands, thinking about them often, dwelling on those things. I find that when I go on road trips, You eat out every meal, right? Because you can't cook. So you're eating out every meal and you're eating food in gas stations. And I'll finally come home from those and you would think, I'd be like, ah, home-cooked meal, so excited. I have this weird thing where I get home and it's like, I want to go out to eat again. I don't want to eat the food here. (laughs) My taste changed. Because restaurants, they don't cook like we do at home. Neither does the gas station package those things. Those foods are so rich and they are done to sell really, really well, that you have to have a moment to where you get a little used to a little less sodium, sugar, and fat. Our tastes have to change. And if in the same way that orange juice tastes very different if the last thing in your mouth was either bacon or toothpaste, (laughs) whatever's been in your mind all week, all day is going to change how those promises are to you. The desire we feel from, the taste from, the crave that we have for, I need God's much bigger promises in my life. The heart is the desire that we would grow in our desire because we keep these things in our minds. 
I love Paul's method. It's so clean. It's so, it's so understandable that we must dwell on these things, thinking of them often, praying, reading scripture, making sure that we're staying with, uh, in close relationships with other Christians, that we talk about the promises that we have. That it would be on our minds so much that it would interpret the whole world around us and drive our decisions. I took a class. I, I was not making nearly enough money as the youth pastor. <laughs> so I went and I took classes on drafting. And in the same course, they made me take a bunch of classes on manufacturing. And I got to this point after taking the class that I saw everything through manufacturing eyes. I would pick something up and I'd be like, there's the seam line from the, from the injection mold of plastic, flip it over, there's where they broke the sprue off. Like, I just saw everything in that light. This must have been stamp manufactured. That was probably CNC'd. And it was just everything around me suddenly was being seen and interviewed and processed through the manufacturing classes. It's so critical that we think about and dwell on the promises of God and live in them so much that the life we live daily is interpreted through that lens, that it would change the way we see everything. Great assurance awaits us. Incredible assurance to grow in our desire for those promises. We need to dwell on them. An incredible assurance awaits us. We need to spend a lot more time thinking about God's work and less time thinking about what we want in our daily lives. The little carnal things. Jesus' prescription for it is seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you. He knows you've got the little needs. It's nothing to say that you're never going to make your mortgage payment. You're never going to uh, have a comfortable day in your life because God's asking you to wreck it for eternity. His point as shepherd is follow him, stick with him because he knows what you need and he's going to make sure you don't go without. Life is more than buying a home. It's more than good retirement. These are wise and prudent things, and I don't mean to push them down at all, but they always have to be submitted to the chase and the pursuit of heaven. That that would be what our life's pursuit is. That's what it would say. That's what would be in the obituary. They spent their life chasing eternity. That if the choice would come between the good and prudent things that we all agree upon that are good to do and prepare for and to have in our lives, that if we were given the choice between that and the sake of knowing Christ, we would count them as trash and throw them away. The life that is to come is supposed to consume this one. So Jesus speaks this incredible eternal promise that he gives life and he gives it eternally. He gives signs that the shepherd is not just leading us to a good Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but he's leading us into a great eternity the goodness we feel now, it's just a sample. It is, it is an archetype of the kind of promises he has, the goodness of Christ that goes on forever. If that's his promises, what should our response be to those? Sticking with Paul, let's read what his response to such an idea would be. Uh, Philippians 3. Whatever were gains to me in this carnal life, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. 
Do you hear that desire, the way he feels? He throws it away for that. I want to know Christ, yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining resurrection from the dead. Paul says, hold things in your mind and the things that get in the way. It's time to jettison them and dump them overboard. How can you hold this great hope in your hand when you're hanging on to lesser things you refuse to let go of? When something else takes the place of that, you cannot serve carnal, lifely pursuit and earthly success and eternal success at the same time. One must be submitted to the other, and it always is. How can you grow in this incredible blessed assurance that we have in eternity if we haven't grown to desire them? Great, incredible assurance does await us, but we have to let God change our taste buds. We have to let him change the way that we want things, what we see, and how often we think of things, that it would change our desires, that the whole life we live becomes interpreted through that lens, through that eternal promise. I guess the question is, is what pursuits in your life have gotten into the driver's seat? And they're not supposed to be there. All of life has come down to, and the the planning and the, the strategy of it, the things we do, Is it time that they get out of the driver's seat, get back in the back seat, and put their dang seatbelts on? We find that with these things, often we think about them far more than we think about God. And even when we pray, we bend our prayers around the things that we're chasing. And we find that we are getting free of them when we begin to pursue God for the sake of just pursuing God. Because he's incredible, and that is the fulfillment, that is the promise. All promises lead up to one thing, and that promise is fulfilled for the sake of simply knowing, being with, and having an eternal relationship with God. No one is saying you're going to have nothing, but everything has to be submitted to Christ. As Paul said, Christ is surpassingly superior. That if we look at him long enough, if we dwell on him long enough, other things in this world fade. So if we want to grow in our desire for that incredible assurance, let's grow in the way we think, let's grow in the way we hope, let's grow in the way that we plant and develop our lives. Let's pray. Lord, today I ask that there would be changed hearts in this place. Start with, with, with mine, with all of ours, Lord. We hand them over to you and we say, God, show us what we've been pursuing, what we've been chasing the things that have worried us, they've kept us up at night, Lord. Allow our fears, our hopes, and our desires to be submitted to the surpassing knowledge of simply knowing Christ, having his promises, going to where the good shepherd leads us. God, I pray you would change our thinking. I pray that right now you'd even be inspiring us as to what it would look like to restructure our thinking life. What things do we start listening to, stop listening to, start reading, stop reading? What habits are you saying are distracting and which ones are you asking us to establish that we would focus and see you better? I'm going to pray and as I pray, if you have something in your spirit, you feel like this has been ahead of you. Let's offer, I want you to offer that up in prayer as I pray over you. 
the worries and things, the hopes, the desires, the things that have grown too big have been driving your life. Now is a divine moment to trade those with the Lord. God, I pray for everybody who's raising something up to you right now. And they say, this thing's been way too much in my mind. It's been way too much in my heart. And if I'm being honest with myself, it's been leading me. Come, Lord, come be the good shepherd and lead me instead. That my whole life and the hope that I have would be for something even greater and beyond this. Lord, I pray for that transaction to take place and for people to be renewed in their posture with you as their shepherd. I want to give a moment with every head bowed and every eyes closed. If you've if you've never even begun that step into eternal hope and you've never given your hope to Jesus, you've never said that, that, that he is going to be the shepherd of your life and you feel like today's the day to make that change, to start a new story, a new chapter to begin, a new story of your life right now, I want to give you that opportunity. So with no one looking around, I want, I'm, and no one will call you out, but I'd like you to raise your hand. You can say, that's you. I'm gonna, I'll pray from up here. I want to make sure it's a that we give everybody an opportunity. So if that's you, you could just raise your hand and I'm going to pray. It's always good to ask. Lord, this morning, I thank you for the saints that are in here that say, Lord, come direct us, come lead us, and come bring us into greater things. Lord, let us live every day for the eternal promises and be renewed in you. In Jesus' name, amen.